0: I'm, uh, station manager Dan Aykroyd. Uh, Jane, you ignorant slut. It's the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man. 3-605, 0.10, 0.20, 0.22, 0.24, 0.26, 0.50, It specifies clean shirt, short hair, tie, pressed trousers, sports jacket or suit, and leather shoes, preferably with a high shine on them. It's 106 miles to Chicago. We got a full tank of gas, half a pack of cigarettes. It's dark. And we're wearing sunglasses. Hit it. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Dan Aykroyd Podcast. Uh, This one's going to be a bit somber. In this podcast, we're going to cover John Belushi, The Final Hours. Uh, This was a show, I believe uh, it was on British television. I first became aware of it on YouTube, and I actually picked up the DVD uh, for like $3 at uh, at a bargain store a few years back. Yes, we're going to explore the last 24 hours of John Belushi's life. This show is a collection. It's a dramatization. They also have voiceover. They also have interviews. That's where Dan Aykroyd comes into this. And then they also have flashbacks of the actual John Belushi and certain things that he did. And this was done with a variety of celebrities. Uh, Keith Moon, Janis Joplin, uh, Sid Vicious... And this one just happens to be of John Belushi, and that's the one we're going to cover today. It opens with a counting clock in the corner. And to me, that's very, very effective. For when you watch this, you it sounds odd, but you're rooting for John Belushi. You're rooting for a different outcome because John Belushi was such a lovable character. So you see the ticking clock, and it's sort of when you first see it, it sort of hurts your heart because you know that it's not going to change. And you know exactly what happens and we cut to the first thing we see in this uh in this show is john belushi he's going to see he's going to a meeting well let me back up i also want to say that this show is incredibly incomplete in some of its reenactments i've read uh countless books articles on the final days of john belushi I read Wired by Bob Woodward. I also read Belushi, uh, written by his wife, who was in this show. And a lot of things are left out, probably because they couldn't get permission or they didn't want certain people to sue, having them end up in this. And also there's speculation in a lot. It was just Belushi and some shady characters. You really can't take their word for it. We're just going on what they say. So a lot of it is hearsay as well, presented as fact. Once again, we open. John Belushi is going to a meeting with his manager, Bernie Brillstein, and uh, the president of the network, Michael Eisner. Bernie gives interviews throughout this. Not only was he Belushi's manager, he was also Belushi's friend. And we cut to the meeting, and it's Michael Eisner, and you first get the feel. this. The first scene just tells you how... Hollywood treated people then and probably now as objects, as pieces of meat. The meeting was for John Belushi to star in this movie called Joy of Sex, based on the book of the same name. Apparently, this movie was a piece of crap, and the screenplay was floating around Hollywood for years. Michael Eisner didn't care what the movie might do to Belushi's reputation— He just wanted to get the movie made, and he felt Belushi was the best person to get this movie made. That's why they're having the meeting. Belushi, we cut to an interview with his ex-wife, or his widow, his widow, uh, Judy Belushi. And she states that John's comedic instincts told him to stay away from this movie. It was going to be a career killer. It was going to be a piece of crap. Apparently they wanted him... To go through all stages of life from a baby to an adult so they wanted john belushi in a diaper they were playing on his animal house persona and at this point in belushi's career he was trying to break out of his animal house persona he wanted to do different things and they wanted to push him back into that hole now i'm not saying belushi was an addict and belushi caused his own downfall but this day Eisner trying to force this movie onto him obviously didn't help his psyche and obviously didn't help his his mental health on that day. Coincidentally, so during the meeting with Bernie and Michael, Dan Aykroyd calls. Dan Aykroyd, in the interview, blatantly says, stay away from this piece of shit. At the time when this was happening, he was writing Ghostbusters. And he was writing it for him and Belushi. As we all know, Ghostbusters went on to be made with Bill Murray, but the original cast was supposed to be him and Belushi. He was telling John, don't do this piece of crap movie. I'm writing this movie. Come back to New York. Because John was in L.A., and Judy and Dan were in New York. Dan's telling him, just come back to New York. Everything's going to work out. Things will happen over the summer. So Belushi, at that point, says no to Eisner. He says, I'm not doing this movie. And according to Bernie Berlstein, it was amicable. Uh, There was no yelling. There was no shouting. Michael was pushing this on them, and Belushi said no. Now we hear from Dr. Drew. Dr. Drew is in this, and I am not a big fan of Dr. Drew. Dr. Drew was basically in this to explain the mindset of an addict. And they probably could have had anybody do this, but Dr. Drew probably was big at the time when this came out. So they got him to do this, which I don't like because he just, he just screams celebrity horror to me as a doctor, a celebrity horror doctor. He's just in this just to get himself ahead in the entertainment business. They could have gotten anybody just to tell us what's going through an addict's head, how an addict thinks, but they got Dr. Drew. We got Dr. Drew through this, and I'm not happy about that. Not a big Dr. Drew fan. During the meeting, right before the meeting ends, Belushi asks Bernie for $1,800 to buy a guitar. We later find out he's getting that money for drugs, but he says it's for a guitar. Bernie gives him the money. Bernie says he legitimately thought it was for a guitar, and I really can't believe that. He had to know what Belushi was thinking and what Belushi was after. However, it was Belushi's money. He earned it. There was no reason for him not to give it to him, no legal reason. So he gave it to him under the impression that he was buying a guitar, and, but he had to have known what it was for. And Judy, we cut to Judy and saying he went to L.A. on a mission just to go on a bender. I guess he, he didn't want, because at that point in his life, Judy and Dan Aykroyd, were trying to police him. They were trying to confiscate the drugs, so he wanted to get away from them, and he just wanted to go on a drug bender in L.A. So it was sort of a combination business pleasure trip. He was there to talk about the movie, but he was also there to get high. Uh, Then we cut to Ann Beats, who was one of the writers on Saturday Night Live, and she says that John was one of the greatest physical comics of all time, up there with Keaton and Chaplin and Harold Lloyd. And I believe that for a big guy, he was really, really agile and he could flop around and he hurt himself a couple of times. But he kept going. So she was saying that he had the makings. He also had the makings of a great dramatic actor. You could see that in in him as well. And the pressure was getting to Belushi at this time because it was three years without a hit movie. He made uh, the Blues Brothers, which was the last hit movie and then he had continental divide and neighbors in there he needed something so once again the pressure the showbiz pressure was on him and he needed to release that and he was going to do that through drugs then we cut to a flashback of him at saturday night live and they say that's where his cocaine addiction started saturday night live back then they were using cocaine as coffee they weren't using it to stimulate creativity they were using it just to, to stay up hours and hours and hours at a time. Because that was the schedule that they were on. They would come in on Monday, write something on Tuesday, you know, block it on Wednesday. They just it was just a madcap schedule. They had to keep up with it, and they were using cocaine. And cocaine at that time was like smoking in the fifties. Nobody thought smoking would kill you. Nobody thought cocaine would kill you. Everybody in the 70s thought cocaine was a harmless drug. It was just there to help you keep awake, sometimes to stimulate creativity, but just to keep you going when you needed to keep going. And everybody, pretty much everybody, they said, used cocaine on Saturday Night Live. Then we find out that John Belushi just had an appetite for everything. So he was using more cocaine than everybody. and He was staying up longer than everybody. And he was going to the parties and he at this is the point where he discovered he had to be John Belushi all the time after Saturday Night Live was a phenomenon where famous people wanted to be associated with it so there'd be a lot of parties with famous people afterward the SNL parties famous people would stop by and Belushi realized he had to be Belushi or he, let me rephrase that Belushi thought he had to be Belushi to keep these people as his friends and that's where the cocaine came in again cocaine kept him up kept him wild kept him John he loved being John Belushi. That was the thing. He loved being John Belushi, and cocaine helped him be John Belushi. Now we cut back to the counter. Less time for Belushi left. He leaves the meeting, and he goes to a friend's house. They never say who. Once again, I don't think they got permission to use names, certain names. I know there was a couple of famous people associated with John on his last night and they were not in this and they're not even mentioned and this friend is not mentioned by name but who is mentioned by name is Kathy Smith and she was a junkie and a groupie and she was the one that would get rock bands drugs John was there to meet her to have her get him some drugs because right before he left for LA Judy begged him not to go Judy didn't want him to go but he was on a mission to get high and that's why he left her and Dan in New York. And the thing with Belushi was how he developed his cocaine habit, as Dan Aykroyd says, people loved, and lo- well, I shouldn't say loved, people liked Belushi so much that they would just give him cocaine. He didn't have to buy it. People were just coming up to him and slipping him cocaine in little packets. They wanted to be associated with John Belushi. They wanted to be associated with the, with the stardom. They didn't really care about John. They just wanted to be around the celebrity. Now we're at the apartment with Kathy Smith and Belushi wants heroin. He wants to try heroin. He wants the heroin high. Now we cut back to the Blues Brothers. There's a Blues Brothers tour. They cut back to the Blues Brothers tour, 1978, 1979. And this is where we're introduced to the character of Smokey Wendell. Smokey was an ex-cop, ex CIA and he worked for Nixon. I think that's kind of ironic that a guy that worked for Nixon is working now, working for Belushi because uh, Aykroyd always did that dead on Nixon impression for SNL. They hired Smokey Wendell to keep the drugs away from John during the Blues Brothers tour. And that's what he did. He kept the drugs away, he kept the pushers away. He was a very positive influence in John Belushi's life. And they said that they did the Blues Brothers tour relatively drug-free. John was crisp. John was clear. He did it all. He felt great about himself, and everybody felt great that they felt that he might finally be getting over this cocaine habit. We return back to Belushi's hotel room. He sent Kathy Smith out to get the drugs, and he's back in his hotel room. And the pressure of having a hit movie it hits him and he calls his manager bernie Brillstein, and he calls (coughs) michael eisner and tells him that he will do the joy of sex so he has buckled under the stress he is buckled under the strain he's going to do a movie that he knows he shouldn't do kathy smith arrives at john's apartment and with the heroin and with the cocaine and she shoots him up with a speedball and that's a combination of heroin and cocaine. We're led to believe that this is the first time that Belushi ever did heroin. But when we look at the autopsy at the end of the at the end of the episode, he had a bunch of track marks on both arms. So people found it hard to believe that this was the first time that he did it this night. Whether he did, whether he didn't. They're doing it now. Kathy Smith shoots Belushi up with a speedball, and they get, into, uh, they get into his car, and they go from bar to bar to bar to bar. Now, while they're bar hopping that night, Belushi calls Aykroyd on the phone, and Aykroyd gets this slurred, unintelligible message on his answering scene. And that's when he heads over to Judy's and says, we've got to get out there, and we've got to get him back. So they were that close. That's how close they were to going out to California and rescuing John. Uh, you know, just uh, a hair. And they were going to go out the next morning. And they were going to call Smokey to go out there to L.A. with him. Because Smokey said, whenever you need me, if you ever need me to help John, just call me. And that's what Smokey did. He was set to go out to L.A. and just grab Belushi by the scruff of his neck and bring him back to New York around people that loved him and trying to get him straight. All three of them were on the same page. Unfortunately, they were just a, a day late and a dollar short. Now we cut back to John's high school days where he first met Judy. And Judy saw John on the stage. And she just knew, well, she said she just knew he was going to be a star. And she was right. And then we get, uh, we get Dan Payne, Belushi's drama teacher. And this guy definitely said that Belushi could have been a great dramatic actor because he, sure he was a clown, sure he was slapstick, he, he could do uh, comedic monologues, he saw that John had something in him and could be just a great dramatic actor given the time because he already had the talent. And John was a chameleon in high school. He fit in with everybody. And when he graduated high school, he was the captain of the football team, homecoming king, and voted most popular. Now, this was by a short round man you know he wasn't the classic six foot two blue eyes blonde hair this was this was him going on his personality just going out there so right from the beginning he had the makings of going for stuff and getting what he wanted he had that right from the get-go they described him as a tough guy with a big heart and that's what got him in trouble because he trusted people He trusted too many people he trusted people that he shouldn't have trusted boom cut back to the clock even less time for Belushi we're down we're under 10 hours now he has 10 hours left to live and we cut to him at the Roxy nightclub this was a nightclub for celebrities where they could go and not be bothered by fans so we took Kathy Smith to the Roxy and they went into the bathroom several several times to shoot up uh speedballs half the night they're drinking half the night, they're shooting up in the bathroom. And at this point, we hear later, we'll find out later from the medical examiner that Belushi is not going to die of an overdose. He's slowly shutting down his body with these drugs, which stunned a lot of people because Belushi was often described as a bull. Nothing could, nothing could stop him, nothing could keep him down. But he did it so much, so often that his body finally finally started to wear down and we cut the bernie Brillstein saying that you can't blame yourself for somebody else's drug problem which is true because now he says he's starting to feel bad about giving him the money but it was belushi's money and he had no right to and he had no right to keep it from him and then we have a, a, we cut to judy saying that he never let go of the child in him he never wanted to grow up And he felt like doing drugs would keep him childish and childlike. And if he stopped doing drugs, he would have to grow up. By the way, I'm doing this in the middle of a thunderstorm. So that's what you heard in the background. Now we cut to Belushi in his 20s. And he's at Second City, where he trained to become an improv actor and was a stepping stone to Saturday Night Live. And the fact about Belushi, which always stuns me, is John Belushi is the only person to ever audition for Second City and go straight to the main stage without going on a touring group. Nobody did it before him. Nobody has done it after him. He is the only person to audition and go right to the big leagues. He's the Al line of improv. You sports nuts will know what I'm talking about with that one. We cut the Bernie Salins. He's the founder of Second City. He was the one who said that Belushi pushed the rest of the cast. But when the cast saw what Belushi was doing, they had to keep up with Belushi. Or Belushi would just steamroll him and take every scene. So Belushi made the entire cast better when he was on stage. And then we cut to Eugenie. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but Eugenie Ross-Lemming, uh, and she was a cast member while John was in Second City Television. And she stated that he had the confidence of a person that had more experience and more age. She said that John shouldn't have had the confidence that he did have, but he did have it. And that shone through in his performance. And after Second City, Chicago was his home. He couldn't go anywhere in Chicago without being recognized. So this was his first home, his first love, which I believe is why Blues Brothers is set there. But this was his first love and He wasn't doing drugs when he was at Second City because he was chasing his dream. That's what they were saying. Belushi was chasing his dream at this time. That was his high then. But once he was beginning to get things that he wanted, that's when the drugs came in. We cut to Dan Aykroyd, and this is where we hear him say that John was associating with energy vampires. And when most people say somebody's an energy vampire, uh, they're speaking metaphorically. I'm pretty sure Dan Aykroyd was speaking literally because this is how Dan Aykroyd's mind works. I believe Dan Aykroyd was saying that John Belushi was around energy vampires and these vampires were taking his life force from him and he was around him so much that this helped cause his death too that people were taking John Belushi's life force, the people he associated with. Now we cut back to the ticking clock we got five hours left of John Belushi being alive and they leave the Roxy and they drive home and John Belushi has to pull over. Now here to me, I think it's a little sketchy, a little, because it's just Kathy Smith and John Belushi. And we know we didn't get this story from John Belushi. Can you really trust what a junkie and a drug dealer has to say? Now, there's nothing ludicrous in all this. I'm just saying we really can't take any of these from here on out. We can't take anything that we hear as fact because you really can't trust a junkie in her retelling of the story because some things might have happened to make herself look less guilty, stuff like that, because as I said, we don't really gain anything. They leave the Roxy they go back to his hotel they smoke a joint she shoots Belushi up for the last time it's 315 in the morning so now we're on March 5th the day that he dies it's 315 in the morning how would she remember exactly it's 315 in the morning that she shot Belushi up for the last time with a speedball like I said it's probably this in here for dramatic effect we don't really know but that's what it says once again, we cut to years earlier with Smokey Wendell. We go back to Smokey, how he was hired to keep Belushi away from drugs, and he did that. He go, the first day he met Belushi, somebody tried to give him drugs three times, and he kept it away from Belushi three times. At one point, he took the, the cocaine that this person was trying to give Belushi and just dumped it in his coffee in front of him and said, That's, this is the best sweet and low you'll ever find. And Belushi was pissed and Smokey said look if you don't want me here I'll go and I think at that point Belushi knew that he had a problem and he kept Smokey there and Smokey kept John clean. He was also getting John to work out because not only was he a drug addict he was just had an addictive personality so he smoked too much he ate too much and now Smokey not only was keeping him off of drugs he was cutting down on his smoking, he was cutting down on his drinking, he was exercising more. Belushi had this, and I believe a lot of drug addicts have this, he couldn't sleep. Even when he wasn't doing drugs, he couldn't sleep. He was an insomniac. He was up all the time. And Smokey said one day at the middle of the night, John just knocked on his door and they started talking for hours and hours and hours, and it really came across that John loved Judy. That he was doing this for her and I believe at that point in his life he really thought he was going to kick the habit and he really thought that it was behind him and that he would have a bright future and that was the summer that he spent in Martha Vineyard it was the 1981 summer it was his last summer at Martha Vineyards. that was his place that was his sanctuary and that whole summer acroid comments that there was no pills, there was no powder, maybe a couple of joints, some beers, but other than that it was a it was a clean, mellow, calm summer. And John was looking good. He had he had color in his face. He wasn't uh, gaunt from the drugs. He had he had a hefty weight on him, but he looked healthy. He he wasn't he wasn't staggeringly overweight. But then, after that, Aykroyd and Belushi start shooting the movie Neighbors. And that was Belushi's downfall again, because Neighbors was shot mostly at night. So once again, everybody started using cocaine to stay up for the night shoots. And Belushi tried to white-knuckle it. He tried to stay away from it as much as possible, but he just couldn't. So he was, uh, by the end of the shoot with Neighbors, he was back on drugs he was back on cocaine. And Dan Aykroyd said at that point in the early eighties, there was no such thing as an intervention like we have today where you sit somebody down and you sit them around and you tell people that they love them. He goes, it wasn't there. You know, you, you tried to talk to him, but at this point, Belushi wasn't listening. At this point, Belushi was back on drugs and he couldn't help himself being back on drugs. Now we cut back to Belushi's hotel room again, and we see the counter in the corner again, and it's you know less than two hours that Belushi had, and he spent the last two two and a half hours before he died sleeping because he he complained that he was cold, so uh, Kathy Smith put him to bed. And he was in there and he was snoring. And he was on his side, and she said at 10.15, like I said, she said at 10.15, she checked in on Belushi and said he was snoring. So uh, she orders some coffee and toast, writes a letter, and then leaves. Ultimately, at the very, very end, John Belushi is alone in his hotel room. He's got nobody. And then we cut to interviews with Judy and Dan, both saying that they both could have done more or they both thought they could have done more. And you can really see it in Aykroyd's eyes and in his tone. He says, I have to live with this every single day of my life that I could have done more to save my friend. And that's a very, very touching moment in this whole thing. Because you can see how much love he had for Belushi. Well, you know that from from all the interviews of that, but that, that, that little snippet, that little interview right there you can really tell and he's just kicks himself that he didn't get there in time <clears throat> so it's around noon and uh, bill wallace who is belushi's assistant arrives with a typewriter they were working on a script once again there's a whole other s- thing going on here which is not in this i'll probably cover this in future podcasts uh with others st- with other books written about belushi that include Acheroid. um as this show goes, Bill Wallace arrives with a typewriter and he goes in to get Belushi up and he can't get him up and he's shaking him and Belushi isn't breathing and his first instinct is to call uh, Bernie Brillstein and the first words out of Bill Wallace's mouth to Bernie is we're in trouble and Bernie thinks that John is hung over. What do you mean he's hung over? Because John had a meeting that day to sign the papers to do Joyous Sex and Bernie's like, is he hung over? He won't get up? You go, no, he's having trouble breathing. At this point, Belushi is dead. But Bill doesn't know it or doesn't accept it. But at this point, Belushi is dead. He he went to sleep and never woke up. And I guess if that's the way to go, that I don't know if that's a good way to go or a bad way to go. But like I said, he was alone at the end, so we don't know really what happened, if there was any convulsions or anything like that. But He died in his sleep. Bernie calls 911, and he gets to the hospital because at this point, Bernie doesn't know that he's dead. According to the assistant, he's just having trouble breathing. Bernie gets to the hospital, and he arranges for the ambulance to come around back because he doesn't want a swarm of reporters or a swarm of people to find out that John Belushi is coming to the hospital. Then we cut back to Bill Wallace, and he's trying to revive Belushi, and he's slapping him. And he's just pounding on his chest. And according to Bill Wallace himself, he just started saying over and over, you dumb son of a bitch, you dumb son of a bitch, you, you dumb son of a bitch. And the paramedics arrive and they don't know that he's dead. So they try to revive him. They put him on the floor. They try to revive him. And because they think he had a heart attack, they don't know anything about the drug. So they think their initial thought is John Belushi had a heart attack. After they try, uh, CPR and all that they pronounce him dead he's been dead for a while but at that point a little after a little around one o'clock on March 5th 1982 uh, Belushi is pronounced dead and somebody calls Bernie at the hospital because Bernie still doesn't know that Belushi's dead he thinks that he's coming in the ambulance and somebody calls him and says you can come home Belushi's dead and once again he thinks he's responsible because he gave him the money but as he said before it was Belushi's money he was entitled to it and as he said before you can't feel bad for people with drug problems if something happens to them you've you've done what you can and if they're determined to do drugs are going to do drugs and that would happen with Belushi he was determined to do drugs Bernie calls Dan Aykroyd and as Aykroyd said he was writing the script to Ghostbusters and he said as the phone rang he was typing a line for John in the script right as the phone rang and Bernie tells Dan that he needs to get over to Judy's because Belushi's dead and none of them wanted her to find out on the news so Aykroyd rushes over he runs through the streets he gets to Judy's apartment runs up the stairs and tells Judy that her husband is dead and Dan Ackerroyd took it upon himself it's like I have to get there I have to tell Judy that John is dead she can't find out through the paper or through a reporter calling, asking her a question. He wanted to be there to tell her and to sort of cushion the blow for her, which he did. And Judy, to this day, still appreciates Dan Aykroyd doing that for her. Well, two weeks later it comes out from the coroner that Belushi died of a drug overdose. And as I said before, a lot of people thought that that was the night that he first started doing heroin, but there were track marks on both sides of his arms. And a lot of people speculated that he was doing heroin a lot longer than that. It's irrelevant at this point. Belushi is dead. Uh, Kathy Smith gets 18 months in prison for manslaughter, not even two years. And they bury John in Martha's Vineyard. That was his happy place. He loved being in Martha's Vineyards. And people to this day, like uh, with uh, Morrison in Paris, people go to see his grave people still come to Martha's Vineyard to see Belushi's grave year after year after year because he touched so many people in such a short career and that says a lot about John Belushi and then we have the end of the episode and the end of the episode is uh, Dan Aykroyd talking and once again his beliefs are Dan Aykroyd is talking that you meet people in this life for a certain amount of time and then they move on or you move on but eventually you're all going to meet again and you may not when you meet again you may not stay together forever but once you do meet it's going to be one hell of a party and that's the end of the episode so like I said this is a somber uh, Dan Aykroyd podcast uh, and I can't grade Dan Aykroyd's performance in this because he wasn't performing this was real all the hurt and all the fun he remembered it's all all genuine I guess we all if we all had a friend like Dan Aykroyd in life you're doing well because uh, Dan Aykroyd loved John Belushi with every fiber of his being and and that's what you need in life as for the show itself, as I said before, there's a lot of stuff missing. We get the main characters in Belushi's life, his wife, Dan Aykroyd, Bernie Brillstein. The other people interviewed were were on the outskirts of uh, of Belushi's life from time to time. There were I know there were a lot of other people closer to Belushi that were not included in this. For what it was, it was a very well done, the guy who plays Belushi in the show looks like John Belushi there's not, you don't hear uh, the scenes that are reenacted, you can hear people talking but it's covered by the voiceover the show was very very well made and had a very touching quality about it Even, and I don't think the show was made It's the show's not made to pull the wool over anybody's eyes and try to make Belushi look like something he's not it's very very real about what what happened to Belushi there's just big chunks missing but for what it was it was I don't want to say it was an entertaining watch because it's never entertaining when uh, somebody that uh, you watched liked and respect is going to really die at the end of it but it was interesting and it keeps you engrossed and I would recommend it you can probably find uh, this one and other ones on YouTube And if you can, I would say give it a watch. Uh, This is the end of another Dan Aykroyd podcast. Hope you enjoyed it, and I'll see you again. Check out the next one.